we will be beginning in verse 10 this morning, but uh, what we're going to see is that God has been unfolding his rescue plan uh, for fallen creation. And he started in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 by making a promise. He said, I'm going to promise to redeem you. I'm going to buy you back from sin. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to bruise the, or I'm going to crush the serpent with the heel of the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman, his heel will be bruised by the serpent. It's going to stomp so hard that it's going to affect the one who does the stomping. And so as we've been given a promise, now the question becomes, how's God going to fulfill the promise? And if you've ever been promised something by God, and each one of you have, whether you know it or not, if you open up the Bible, it's filled with promises from your Creator to you if you will believe them and then walk in them. To obtain the promise means to believe it before it's fulfilled. What's interesting about that is that as we get this promise in Genesis 3.15, then we see the world kind of go in this downward spiral of chaos and brokenness and sin and licentiousness. And mankind gets worse and worse and worse. And it's like somebody has, uh, it's going to be graphic, filled the toilet and then started flushing. And it's all going downhill. And so with that being the case, what in the world could God possibly do to redeem mankind and set things right? So he begins this rescue plan from Genesis 3 all the way to the flood and then all the way to where we find ourselves today, where we see the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. We see all of the descendants of Noah, this new beginning where three families, essentially three sons, begin three families. And from these three families, uh, through man's circumstances that we saw through Noah, we see that there's one family that's singled out as the family that's going to be a blessing to the entire world. And that is the family, the line of Shem. So as we get to Genesis chapter 11, we see that mankind is going to do his best to try and save himself. He sets up a worship system. And as he sets up this worship system, what we find is that mankind, the best that he can produce with the best finances, the best builders, the best structure, uh, he produces this worship system that can still not save you. And God's going to tear it down so that mankind realizes that the best of the best of the best in the eyes of the Lord is foolishness. And so in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, we continue on as we see God's not only narrowing down the entire world, he's going to narrow it down to a, a single line, and then he's going to narrow it down to a family, and then ultimately he's going to narrow it down to a person. And that person he's going to call and he's going to reach out to, and he's going to promise blessing to, and then he's going to tell this man, I'm going to bless the entire world through your descendants, and I'm going to give them a land, and I'm going to make myself known to the world through this one man. And so as we go forward in my slides here, we see in verse 10, he says, this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. And after he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. 
My clicker's not working. Arphax said, lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphax said, lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber, who we talked about last week, is the really the reason they call them the Eberus. The Ebrews, that's the origination of this term, lived 34 years and begot Peleg. Now, if you remember in the last chapter, that's where the descendants stopped. And Peleg, or Peleg, probably totally butchering all these pronunciations, he was alive in the day that the earth was divided. And if you've been in school of any sort, you've probably heard of this theory of Pangea, where if you took the world and you looked to all the continents and you cut them out on paper and tried to piece them together, isn't it kind of interesting that they all look like they'd fit like a puzzle? And what's interesting is that they would fit as a puzzle. And I believe that the one of the ways that God separates all of these continents is not only for a reason to divide us so that we can be united in Christ instead of location, but also so that continents are created and mankind can be spread out and dispersed throughout the world. So it says after he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years, begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Sarug. After he begot Sarug, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So as we look at this, I want to point out something before we go on to verse 27. Verse 9, all people are scattered about the entire face of the earth. And if you've ever had toys in your basement or in your house, you know that when the kids get done with them, they are scattered. And it takes a lot of work to gather them back together. But they are scattered about the face of the entire earth at this point. Verse 10 through 17, all of these are the same descendants that were restated from chapter 10, the table of nations. But then in verse 18 through 26, we see Peleg through Terah's sons. And in Terah's sons, we have one son by the name of Abram, who will eventually become Abraham, renamed by God. And so verse 27 through 30, what we're going to see is Abram and Sarai are the only barren couple. If you've noticed as we read through this genealogy, every couple has sons and daughters. They name them, they die, and then their sons and daughters have sons and daughters, and then they name them, and then they die. And it's just all of this cycle. So if God's going to pick one family to reveal himself to the world, it wouldn't really stand out if he had a family that had sons and daughters, and then they lived a little longer and died. They would, 
in order for God to make an exclamation point, he's going to pick a family that actually doesn't have any descendants. And he's going to say to this couple, I'm going to bless the world through your descendants that you don't have. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And so he chooses Abram, not because Abram had strength. If you read Romans chapter 4, Abram's strength was his faith. It wasn't anything he brought to the table. He's even from a nation of idolaters. His father was a idolater. He, he made idols. He was an idolsmith. And, and so with that being said, verse 27 goes on to say, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Why is that important? Well, down the road, if you've read Genesis, you'll know that this will be an important character. God's developing the story, and he's laying out the characters in the story so that he can develop the story properly like any good writer would. He says, um, excuse me, um, let's see, verse 28, And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. So verse 31, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law and Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So another thing to note is that the lifespan of these people is getting less and less because there's more and more sin involved in their descendants. And so as we look at this story, let's look at more than just a genealogy. Um, number one, I want to put this up there, and I think I've already made this point, but it's as if God is saying, enough with the confusion. If you remember the end of the chapter, the last week's teaching, we were looking at the Tower of Babel, and man was presenting and, and building this religion that would gain access and gain hope and a future, and yet... Um, God confused the language to send them out so that they would all, he would be able to get their attention so they would hear his voice instead of their own. He says, enough with this confusion. I'm going to make myself known through one man, starting with one family. And as we talked about, he picks a, a very unlikely family, a family with no descendants, a family that's in a nation of idolaters, a family that doesn't even know him at this point. And so, Verse 31, as we see Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. Why? Well, because he's telling the story of what happened before he tells the story of what initiated it. He says, this is what happened. Terah took Abram and his family. But what we're going to find out in the beginning of Genesis 12 is that what God told Abram, not Terah, he told Abram, I want you to go 
to the land of Canaan. I want you to get out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I want you to get out of your family, and I want you to go to a place. What's interesting about this is that the name Terah, Abram's father, means delayed. I don't know about you guys, but this has been a year of delay. Everything's delayed. I, I thought things were getting canceled, uh, but apparently not. Everything's just delayed till later. But Terah means delayed, and it seems as if, once we get to Genesis 12, that God called Abram to leave. And Abram, by the way, who is known as a man of faith, he's actually the example we're to look at as an example of a faith-filled man, and yet the first step of faith God calls him to do is to get out, to go from, and to go to, and yet instead of doing that, he stays with his father. And it says there in Genesis 11, verse 31, that Terah took the first step. Terah took Abram and his family out to go. Who was supposed to take them? Well, according to the narrative we just read, we don't know yet. But spoiler alert, Abram was supposed to take them. But notice where they go when Terah leads. They go to Haran. Now, I'm going to give you a map here shortly, but Haran, see Ur of the Chaldeans is in the lower right there. Got you a little spinny circle. Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans would be uh, the Riviera. It would be a place well known for a vacation spot. It would be like being along the Mediterranean Sea in Italy. It would be a place that people, many people would seek after to go. As a matter of fact, if you want to know where uh, the first hot tubs started up, they started in Ur of the Chaldeans. If you want to know where idols were made, Ur of the Chaldeans. It was a place for pleasure. It was a place for leisure. It was a place for enjoyment. And if you had money, this is where you would live. Nowhere else. The world, everything that the world has to offer right there in Ur of the Chaldeans. So God calls Abram and he says, I want you to leave this place. Oh, but, but, but it's comfortable. They got hot tubs. I don't know what's in Canaan. Apparently there's nothing there. Otherwise, why, why would you call me away? But when he follows Terah, instead of God the Father who's leading him out, look what happens. He goes to a place called Haran. Now Haran is halfway to Canaan. So you might think they made a big step of faith. But it's as far as you can go from Ur of the Chaldeans and still be in the Babylonian territory. He went halfway, but he didn't leave. Does that make sense? God has called us as his disciples to deny ourselves, die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And so many people end up delaying that decision, delaying those first steps of faith, and so they never actually enter in, though they have made themselves uncomfortable. They've left home, but they've not left their family, and they've not gone to where God's told them to go to. God hasn't called you to leave the world to be in limbo. He's called you to leave the world to walk with him. And God ain't hanging out in Haran. God isn't hanging out in the world. God's in Canaan. Now, is God in Haran? Yes. Is God in Ur of the Chaldeans? Yes. But God's called Abram to a place of intimate fellowship with him 
that can only be realized fully in Canaan. And so what's interesting about that is that later, he stays in Haran with his father for 15 years, not obtaining the blessing of the fulfilled promise. And so I'm going to go back a slide and make a couple of observations. They went to Haran instead of Canaan, halfway but still in Chaldean territory. They never actually left the world. Many Christian believers, many proclaimed Christian believers, cannot figure out why they are miserable in the world, why they have no joy, why they have no victory over sin. And I would submit to you that many of them have not actually left the world. They've actually remained in the world while proclaiming to have left. And that's where Abram finds himself, a place of disobedience, I always tell my kids, delayed obedience is disobedience. And delayed obedience leads to miserable. And so he's stuck for 15 years in Haran. Now, I'm going to turn with you real quick. As we look at Abram staying with his father, which might seem like a good thing. He stays with his father. And you, you might remember a, a man in the New Testament that Jesus spoke to in Luke chapter 9, verse 59. Luke 9, verse 59. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. What's interesting is that Abram never leaves the land of Haran until he buries his father, until his dad dies. He hasn't let go of what the world has offered. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, why don't you let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God? Jesus says, follow me. And we say, well, I got some things to do first. This man said, I specifically want to bury my father. Does that mean, by the way, that there was a funeral proceeding going on and he wanted to go to the funeral? Was Jesus being brutal? And I would say to you, no, this was something they would say in their culture. I would love to come and help you. I'd love to come and be your disciple. I'd love to come be your Padawan learner, you might say. But before I leave, I've got some things I want to attain to. It wasn't an immediate need. It was a down-the-road need. Why don't you let me take care of some other things first, and then I'll follow you, Jesus. And, but Jesus often has said to his disciples, why do you call me Lord and Master and yet not obey the things that I say to do? Delayed obedience is disobedience. And what's funny is that if you look at this, basically, um, personal obedience, by the way, to Jesus should be a higher priority for the believer than allegiance to even family. Now, this flies in the face of our culture because everything in our culture, and even in Christian culture, you know, focus on the family and ministries like this. I think oftentimes we can throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We can, we can say, okay, well, I, I want to follow Jesus, and I that means I need to honor my family. But the problem is, is that many times family can actually be the biggest hindrance to obeying Jesus. You know, I remember the first time I went overseas. I, I was not afraid because, number one, I was single, and I didn't have anybody responsible for. But I, I, I was going to India, and the biggest hindrance to me was my family because God called me to go and then my family was like, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? 
And I kept telling them from what God had shown me that the safest place for a Christian to be is where God calls them to be. And so if he's going to call me to the Sudan, some place where there's actual persecution, he's going to protect me there or he's going to take me home from there. So Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. No turning back, though none go with me, the old hymn says. Still, I will follow. That doesn't mean the world. That can mean people that are really kind to us, that love us, that have our best interests. Think about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. God called him to go back to Jerusalem to take an offering towards the end of the book of Acts. And then from there, he knew he was going to proclaim the gospel in Rome. He didn't know how he was going to get there, but he knew he was called to go there. So along the way, all of his Christians, brothers and sisters told him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest you. The Spirit is telling me that, the, that you're going to be chained up if you go to Jerusalem. And yet Paul said to them, I, I kind of know that's coming, and I don't know that it's a bad thing. It could be God's will for my life. And so he goes to Jerusalem, what happens? He goes to take an offering. He even makes some concessions and does some things that, for the sake of others hearing the gospel. And when he does that, guess what happens when he does the will of the Father? He gets arrested. And then as a result of him being arrested, he's put in chains. And that ends up being the avenue that takes him to Rome. And he shares the gospel with Caesar of the entire Roman Empire. This was God's will for his life. And yet everybody around him, Christians, discouraged him from going. And yet he said, I know that this is what God's called me to do. So I'm going to thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your concern. But I must go. And he did. And the call of a believer is that we must obey Jesus rather than men. Not just men that are op opposed to the gospel, but we must obey Jesus even if it means that we might even stumble one of our brothers or sisters. Look at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. Jesus had been speaking to the multitudes, healing the masses, casting out demons. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, it says, while he was still talking to the multitudes... Behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. And then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Can you imagine the pain that this would cause his mom? And yet what we know about the Son of God is that he never sinned. So even in saying such what could come off as a very harsh thing, he wasn't sinning against his mom. He wasn't sinning against his brothers. What he was communicating was that brothers and sisters and the father they are actually even closer family than our blood relatives. 
that the kingdom of God is a family that has a higher priority than our blood relatives. Now, I'm preaching this right now, proclaiming this, having had to live this out because it's not always been high-fived at all for me to proclaim the gospel and be a pastor instead of an engineer. My family didn't go, this is awesome. They went, well, you know you can still use your degree, right? But God said, you need to, to keep doing what I've called you to do, even if nobody else gets it. And, and for you, it might be something totally different. But I want to encourage you, the same that we should see from the, the life of Abram here, that the blessing is built into obedience. And obedience is always something that leads to further blessing and obedience. And it leads us into a closer communion with God because no one else can understand what it means to be forsaken by all others and yet not the Father. Unless we go into that tunnel of obedience. And so all that said, verse 31 and 32, we see that Terah was the one to take him out of the land and get Abram is the one that's been called. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those, excuse me, I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So verse 1 through 3 is in contrast to what we saw in Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9. What did the people that built the ziggurat, the place of worship, this false worship system in Babel, they built the tower, and what did they say while they built the tower? These followers of Nimrod had said to one another, we will make bricks. We will build a city for ourselves. We will build a tower. And yet the faithful, even in the Psalms, David writes, Lord, you are my strong tower, my fortress, my place of rest when I'm weak. And yet in Babylon, they were saying, we will build a tower. We will make our own name great. We will protect ourselves from being scattered. And here's what God says to Abram. If you'll humble yourself, if you'll submit yourself to my plans, the Lord had said to Abraham, Abram, get out of, get out from, and go to. Now, from the place of obedience to this command comes all the blessing. He says, you get out of, you get out from, you leave and go to the place that I'm telling you. And when you do this, I will make you a great nation. Not we will, but I will. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You want to make a name for yourself? Stop thinking about how you can make a name for yourself. Make a name for Jesus. Live for him in your daily life. Your name will become great, but it won't be about you. It'll be about him. The name above any other name. No other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. He says, I will bless you. In obedience, we obtain God's blessing. 
I will make your name great. I will make you not only a blessing to yourself, not only a blessing to God, then I will make you a blessing to the world. Now think about this. Abram can't even have kids. He's a scourge to his own family. In their culture, if you couldn't procreate, there's something wrong with you. You're cursed. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing to the world. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. For those of you who haven't voted yet, by the way, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I'm saying here there's a promise to all those who would hear it. If you will put leaders into position that will bless the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, then God will bless you. Do you know that? Any leader that will benefit and bless the nation of Israel is going to obtain the blessing of God. Just simply, whether they're a believer or not, there's blessing attached to that. God is binded by what he promises. We need to, we need to take advantage of that. I mean, take advantage of God. He's put himself out there. He's able to fulfill this promise today. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And in contrast, I will curse those who curse you, Abram. Anybody that curses Abram and his descendants is going to have some heat on them. But then he says, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed by you and your descendants. So here's the contrast. Babylon, the world, says, let us or we will do such and such. God says, I will. And even in the book of James, we see this because he says, come you who boast about tomorrow, saying, making plans and saying, we will do this or we will do that. He says, that, that's evil thoughts. That's evil intentions. We don't know what a day brings. Instead, we need to trust the Lord that says, I will. I'll fulfill my promises. And he blesses obedience according to verse 1. He says, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I submit to you that Abram did not experience verse 2 and 3 until he first did what verse 1 said. And we see this because in verse um, 3, we don't see Abram hearing anything from the Lord from this promise, from this command. But then from verse 4 through 9, we see that Abram finally obeys, having buried his father. Verse 4, it says, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So if there's any confusion as you've been reading through this, notice that Abram was obedient when he departed from Haran, but God had told him, I want you to leave from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, just looking at the map earlier, what's interesting to me is that um, if he would have went straight from Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan, I think it was actually a shorter walk. But you might debate that with me and thumb wrestle with me because he'd also have to cross a vast desert. So, you know, we, you know, but my point is, is that it would have been way quicker to go whether he would have skipped the 15 year hiatus of traveling and went straight there. Or if he'd have crossed straight across the desert, I think God would have made a way where there seems to be no way. So verse four, excuse me, verse five, then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, 
and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. So even in his disobedience, he acquired servants while he was in Haran. And then verse 5 continues and says, They departed to go to the land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were there in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants. So look at this. He finally arrives where he was told to go, and the Lord is no longer silent. Have you ever gone through a time in your life where the Lord seems to be completely silent? Have you considered that he's not speaking to you because you didn't listen to the first thing he said yet? God doesn't give us the big major plan. He gives us step by step. We're his kids. Do you tell your kids 42 steps or do you give them the ones you know they can obey first? God's a good father and he's shepherding each and every step. He won't give us the whole plan half the time because if he did, we would scoff and go, that's not possible. I wonder if there was some of that in Abram. Like, okay, you're going to bless all the nations through me. I don't have any kids. I don't know. But what it says here is that when he arrived, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Notice that the promise isn't, I will give you this land, Abram. To your descendants, I will give this land. Like a double whammy. You don't have any kids, and I'm not going to give this, you don't have any land, but I'm going to give this land to your kids. I'm going to give you two things you don't have. And then he says, uh, and there, it says there, Having not obtained what he was promised, it says there, Abram built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still towards the south. So he departs from Haran with Lot, He's 75 years old, which many of us would decide that's retirement age. How can I possibly do anything else for the Lord? And yet here he is. He's 75. He's had no word from the Lord since he was an Ur of the Chaldeans. So he obviously remembered what God told him 15 years previous. And then when he finally goes, God says to him, I will give this land to your descendants. So he gets all the way there and he doesn't he still doesn't get it right away. And yet, when he receives this word, Abram builds an altar to remember what God said and where he said it. Abram's life can be described in worship and in living in tents, temporary dwellings and places of worship. He built them everywhere. And Abram worships, though the promise had not yet been obtained. Has God ever promised you something and it seems like it's never going to come? Abram was promised some pretty amazing things, had not yet obtained him, and yet here in this passage, what he does in the waiting is he worships God. He gives thanks. He praises. And maybe this seems easy for Abram because Abram's 75 years old and, and he's in this land that he doesn't know anything else to do, but I think it's sometimes harder to praise when the thing that God's promised hasn't been given because it's something you need right now. 
And so here we have him, he's, he's praising. So Hebrews chapter 11 talks about Abram in verse 8. This is the hall of faith, and we've been going through the Old Testament, seeing all these Genesis individuals who uh, are mentioned. And there it says in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. But notice what it says. about. Do you see anything in this passage in the New Testament about how Abram wavered? Do you see that? There's nothing in there about him waiting for 15 years. It says, by faith, Abram obeyed and went. If I was writing this, I would write it with all the mud. Because I see all the mud, but what God sees is that he delayed, but he still obeyed. Imperfect obedience, by the way, is the best we can give. That's okay. If you have delayed obedience to something that God's given you to do, here's what's going to happen. Fifteen years later, five minutes later, two hours later, you're going to arrive at a spot where you go, well, obviously I need to do this. But now I feel like I'm doing it because God's been so patient with me. And Satan's going to go, well, God's not going to honor that obedience. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to obey. And there will still be, obe- there will still be blessing attached to that. Don't grieve all the years you lost. Start now. This is your new beginning. Let it rip. God's still waiting for you to obey so he can appear to you again and give you the next step. He didn't give up on you. And so, as we close this morning, I have some questions, and we're going to take communion. My question for you is, how are you responding to God? How are you at responding to God? I got a plethora of questions, so I'm going to read through them. But I'm going to leave this up on the screen as we meditate during worship. We're going to sing a song, and uh, Jesse, I'm going to do something a little out of ordinary. Don't go through the the lyric scroll while we're doing this first song. Um, But we're going to sing a song, the worship team. And as we sing the song, I want you to come up and get communion. And I want you to think about these questions. What has God either previously or currently called you out of for abram it was the ur of the chaldeans he's called him out of the world god's called you out of the world as a believer or to be a believer where has god called you from have you left or are you staying there are there things that you brought with you from ur of the chaldeans what's he called you from he's called you from things what has god called you to What's he called you to do? Where's he called you to be? God's not in the business of just squashing your old life and leaving you in limbo. He's called you to a place, 
of rest in Jesus. And for many of us, that looks different, whether it's a different job, whether it's a different location, whether it's a different relationship. Maybe it's out of a relationship, but maybe it's to intimate fellowship with him for the first time. What has God promised to you if you obey his leading? And is the fulfillment of the promise worth the step of obedience? Have you obtained the promise yet, or are you still delaying for some reason that totally makes cultural sense? It's logical to delay because of all these things that everyone around you will tell you, you know, you do you, but God's called you to do him, not you. And what are you doing as you wait for his promises to be fulfilled in your life? Are you worshiping in the waiting? Worship doesn't just look like singing, by the way. Worship looks like serving. Worship looks like whatever he's called you to do in the waiting. What did God say to Moses when Moses said, what are we going to do? And, and God said to Moses, look what's in your hand. What was in his hand? A stick. A stinking stick. You guys are picking them up out of your yard right now. I hate sticks, you know. What's in your hand? What's God placed in your hand that you can use to worship him? Maybe it's a skill. Maybe it's a strength. Maybe it's a weakness. What are you doing while you're waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he's prepared you for? So all these things are things I want you to think about. How are you responding to God's call to obedience and faith? And are you thinking about the long term, how he wants to bless you in your obedience, in your hard obedience? By the way, obedience is always hard because there's always other things you could be doing instead. There's a lot of blessing attached. Don't miss it. So as we get ready to take communion, I want you to, to ponder these questions, to come up and get the elements, and then we're going to sing a song, and then we'll, we'll take the, the, the communion meal together in between songs. Lord Jesus, I thank you for Abram, who is a wonderful picture of faith. I thank you for his willingness, uh, even after 15 years of delay, to obey anyway. And maybe for him, it was a step too big to tell his dad no. But for some of us, you're calling us uh, to get outside of our cultural norms and live for kingdom norms. And so I ask, Father, that for those who are in here and those who are watching online, Lord, would you inspire them and show them you're faithful and show them that if they'll just take the first step, you'll, you'll be with them. You've promised that for believers, that you would be with us even until the end of the age. And so, Lord Jesus, as we sing, as we worship in the waiting, would you pour out your Holy Spirit and give peace and rest and inspiration pour out your love show us what the next step is or remind us what the step was we didn't take in jesus name amen